We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this episode, we welcome Annalise Abbott. Her name may be familiar to Acres USA readers. She writes a monthly column called History of Organic Agriculture in America. It's a must-read that's always full of surprises, and so is her first book, Malabar Farm, Lewis Bromfield, Friends of the Land, and the Rise of Sustainable Agriculture. The book explores the life and legacy of a famous Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist who became an Ohio-based, hard-partying prophet of a new kind of agriculture in the post-war era. It's a fascinating story that involves everything from Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall to wild parties, boxer dogs, and techniques that now make up the foundation of sustainable agriculture. I'm thrilled to share this interview with you today, but before that, a word from our sponsor. I want to take this moment to introduce our sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this, farms that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data show farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. Okay, so Annalise Abbott. Annalise studied plant and soil science at The Ohio State University. She ran a Michigan CSA for four years, and now she's a graduate student in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. She's been researching organic and sustainable agriculture since about 2015, and she's the author of a new book called Malabar Farm, Lewis Bromfield, Friends of the Land, and the Rise of Sustainable Agriculture, which is out now. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Annalise Abbott. Annalise, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. You've made the history of organic farming the focus of your academic research, and you've been writing a column on that topic for Acres USA magazine for a while now. Do you feel that that's a subject that's imperfectly understood or misunderstood, perhaps? Maybe another way of asking the question is, you know, what surprised you most during the course of your research? Well, that is a big question to answer because very little has actually been written about the history of organic and sustainable agriculture. Some has been written like memoirs and things of people involved in it. Uh, from people not involved in it, most things have been negative or usually not even mentioned. So one of the most surprising things, I guess, for me has been seeing how long organic and what we would call sustainable now, not using that word, but how long these ideas have actually been part of American agriculture, going back to the 1940s and even earlier. When, when you think about the history of organic farming in America, what do you think? And then what do you think most people think? I mean, and I'm, and I'm not necessarily talking about your average 
U.S. citizen. I'm talking about somebody who, you know, goes to farmers markets, who kind of cares about where their food comes from. You know, do they have sort of a, in, in your research, have you found that people have sort of a maybe a fairy tale version of, of what that looks like throughout history? Well, I think what most people think, or at least what I thought before I really did some research, was that organic farming started in the 1970s, that it was the hippies that started farming, that before then everything was industrial agriculture, and then the 1970s was when there was an awakening along with the environmental movement, and that's when people started organic farming. And that's that's the narrative I see in a lot of the organic farming literature, more written since that time, at least. Right. And so that that's sort of the misconception. But what's the reality? You know, when what where would you find the seeds of what we would identify as natural, sustainable, organic, you know, whatever term you would want to use? Like, where where does that really begin? Obviously, you know, you go far, far enough back in history and it's just like you're, you're farming in certain ways because that's what's available to you. But um, when did it start becoming sort of the self-conscious ethos? And what's interesting about that is that sustainable agriculture, if you want to call it that, has existed as a separate entity really since the beginning of industrial agriculture. So as early as you had the invention of chemical fertilizers, at that same time period, you had people who were saying, no, we shouldn't use chemical fertilizers then. And then when they invented pesticides, at the same time they started using the pesticides, you had people saying, no, we shouldn't use pesticides. And so it's actually always existed in parallel to industrialized agriculture. It has existed ever since industrial agriculture became different from what you might call traditional or pre-industrial agriculture. Right. And so your, your new book is called Malabar Farm, Lewis Bromfield, Friends of the Land and the Rise of Sustainable Agriculture. And Malabar Farm was once considered, quote, the most famous farm in the world. Why was it the most famous farm in the world? How did that come to be? All right. So there were two, there were actually three different things going on. One of them was Lewis Bromfield himself was a famous writer. And so one reason the farm was famous was just because he was famous. But the two other things that were going on was what they called permanent agriculture, which had been started around the turn of the 20th century by agronomists like Cyril Hopkins at the University of Illinois or F.H. King at the University of Wisconsin. And they advocated more natural nutrient cycling systems using a minimum of off-farm fertilizers. Pesticides were not as much of an issue then. And then what you also had going on was the soil conservation movement in response to the huge soil erosion crisis that people started to recognize in the 1930s. You had the Dust Bowl out in the Great Plains and then further east where there was more water, there was really bad water erosion. There were huge gullies, gigantic ones down in the south. In Georgia, there was one that destroyed pretty much 3,000 acres of farmland called Providence Canyon. In Ohio, they estimated between 25% and 75% of the topsoil had been eroded from the farmland in the area where Lewis Bromfield bought his farms. And so there was, as part of the New Deal, there was a huge movement for soil conservation. And so this was a national thing. Everyone, it was the issue of the day, the environmental issue of the day. And it was as much of a catchphrase today as perhaps concern about climate change or other environmental issues in the 70s, like when people were talking about pollution, that is how big the soil conservation movement was in the 1930s. And you mentioned that the farm was famous because Lewis Bromfield was famous. So talk a little bit more about him. I mean, he's kind of a wild 
figure. You know, he became this famous novelist in the 20s and, you know, won a Pulitzer Prize. And, you know, I don't know how often he's read today, you know, his fiction, but, you know, it seems like his legacy is more tied to his farm. But I'm curious to know more about him before he decided to start this agricultural project and sort of how he funneled himself into that. You know, how did that come to be? So Bromfield was born in Ohio in 1896, and he was born in the town, what he always called the town in his books, but that was Mansfield, Ohio. His parents were not farmers, but his grandparents still had a farm. And so he had kind of this romantic memories of being visiting the farm as a boy and all the food, the food was big, all of the good homegrown food that they grew on that farm. And then he wanted to be a farmer at first. He actually started at Cornell University studying farming, but he had to come back. His grandfather broke his hip and couldn't farm. And so Bromfield had to help with the farm. He discovered that as much as he liked farming, he wanted to travel. He wanted to see the world. You can't do that and be a farmer. And so he decided to pursue journalism as a career instead. And so then he went to the Columbia University School of Journalism, but he enrolled right when World War I started. And so then he decided to go to France and be an ambulance driver. And during that time, he fell in love with France. And so then he came back to the United States. Eventually, he lived in New York for a few years. That was where he met his wife, Mary. And then he started writing novels, and people really liked his novels. They have not really endured timelessly. Like, they're not, they didn't make it into the canon of American literature. People don't read them in schools today. They're, I mean, it depends if you like the style of novel. They're not my favorite style. I prefer his nonfiction. Some people still enjoy reading them. But they were really, really popular in his day. He was a best-selling author. So he moved back to France. He gardened for many years at the house that he rented in France. And he probably would have stayed there maybe even the rest of his life if it hadn't been for World War II. When Hitler was about to invade France, that's when he came back to the United States, to Ohio. And what he really wanted to do at that time was get away from the war. He wanted a self-sufficient farm. He wanted an island of security so that even if there was rationing and war and everything else, he could still have food for him and his family and all his friends. Yeah. Give us a sense of like how well-known he was. I mean, you mentioned that his works haven't really endured, but during during that time period, he was quite well-known. Yeah, I think he knew Hemingway. Um Edith Wharton was another one. There's a, pretty much every like, famous author of the time he knew. He had connections in Hollywood. Um, a lot of the Hollywood movie stars would come out to Malabar Farm. One of the most famous ones is that Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall were married at Malabar. And that's one of the big things they emphasize if you go there now and go on the house tour. They've got all the pictures and everything of that. So he had a lot he he knew like all of these famous people and they knew him and he was in that upper circle of American social life at the time. What kind of personality did he have? I mean, you know, what kind of person was he? Was he a hard drinking writer? You know, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily square in my mind with this, this impulse that he has to sort of retreat in a way to the security of rural living. It's hard to say, like he did drink a lot for sure, but he was just a very charismatic person. Mm -hmm. He was very like he, he was never afraid to speak his mind. He had people that were his friends. He didn't mind, you know, calling people names if they weren't his friends. He was very to follow him. Like People would follow him if he led because he was so charismatic. He would get so mm -hmm. passionate and excited about things. 
that people just wanted to do what he said because he was so passionate about it. And he had such a way with words and of convincing people to do things. He was very informal when he gave speeches and stuff. He'd like slouch on the platform, put his hands in his pockets, only had one style of suit that he wore. He didn't really care much about fashion. His novels got him into that upper circle, but he didn't feel like he had to act like a certain way because of his high social status. He just wanted to be friendly. He wanted to have good times. He wanted to entertain people very, very lavishly. He gave huge parties with tons of food, tons of alcohol for friends, acquaintances, all sorts of people. He was very generous. And so while he may have lived an extravagant lifestyle, it wasn't a stingy one. He wanted to make everybody else have feel just as welcome as he did. E.B. White wrote, wrote this poem about him. And I, I didn't know that I was looking around, you know, before we did this interview and, you know, there's a line in there that says boxers in every room of the house, cows being milked to Brahms and Strauss. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if, it, I don't know if cows were milked to classical music, but it sort of paints this picture of, of a farm that really isn't typical that that really is is sort of as idiosyncratic as as its owner and, and i'm curious if you could give us sort of a spoken word tour of malabar you know how big was it what was being produced there you know what made it unique so which time period do you want because it changed i would love to i would love to hear the sort of sweep of of the of the place yeah from beginning to end I, I'm, I'm interested to know kind of you know how it evolved over over time Okay, so I'll say when people would visit in the mid to late 1940s, that was like the peak, the heyday of Malabar Farm. And so by that point, Bromfield eventually transitioned a little bit from the general farm, the self-sufficient idea to specializing just in grass farming. So he always had tons of cows, both dairy cows and beef cows. And he did have a radio in the barn. And there was a cow that, she, that he said chewed her cud in time to the radio. So that's where E.B. White got that line from the poem for it. And there were boxer dogs. He had five of them, I think. At Sometimes it may have been more. And that was the first thing that would greet people. They'd drive up the driveway to this big house. It was a huge mansion that he built. He didn't really want it to be a mansion, but it turned out that way. It started with a farmhouse, and then he added wings on one side and wings on the other side with all these windows. And there was custom wallpaper. You go in the front door, there's these red carpeted double staircases that curve up to the second floor. There's a big mirror above a fireplace with gold stars on it. It's very extravagant, but then he would walk over that red carpet with his muddy boots. He had his boxer dogs would lay on all the expensive chairs, all the antique furniture he brought from France. So it was at once, you know, it, there was a lot of money that went into it, but it was very, very casual the way he lived. He had books and papers scattered everywhere. He was a very messy person. Usually when people pulled up, he'd be outside shoveling manure in his plaid shirt and corduroy trousers they, that people would say, and then he'd have the boxer dogs and he'd say, okay, let's go on a tour of the farm. So he would get his Jeep and they'd get in there with the dogs if there was room for the people with all the dogs. And so he would show them the conservation tillage in his fields. He would show them the pastures. He would show them the milk house, the dairy barn. And then he would take them up to this big hill, which he named Mount G's. And from the top of that hill, you could see the whole farm. You could see the grass. You could see the woods. You could see everything. And he would basically preach a sermon about soil conservation on top of that hill. And everybody that went on that tour was like persuaded that, yes, this is the way to farm. It was a very uh, life-changing experience for a lot of people to visit Malabar. Well, how did his philosophy concerning agriculture develop over time? And I'm curious why he thought this would be a transformative force within post-war period agriculture. 
you know, where did this come from? What were his influences? All right. So Bromfield got most of these ideas from this group of people he was associated with called Friends of the Land. And this is, I feel like, a very important group in the history of sustainable agriculture and the environmental movement and everything. But most people don't know much about them. They were established. Hugh Bennett, who was the head of the Soil Conservation Service, was instrumental in starting Friends of the Land. There were also a lot of people, many of them from Ohio, many rich, influential people. There were businessmen, industrialists, school teachers. There were conservationists. There were all sorts of writers, authors, all sorts of different people. And they came together in 1940 in Washington, D.C., and they started this organization for the conservation of soil rain and man. And so the idea was that everything is connected, that you have to conserve the soil, you have to conserve water, and you need that for human health too, because people can't be healthy if the land is being destroyed. And so this was a huge, it wasn't a huge organization, but they had a lot of influence at the time, and they strongly influenced this field. That was where he got many of his ideas from. They were never that large. They struggled financially, but they had a lot of really influential people that were either part of the organization or were influenced by it. And they had a magazine called The Land that they put out that had that summarized like all of these ideas. And when I read that and I read Bromfield's books, you can see where he got most of his ideas from. And at the same time, he was involved with pretty much every agricultural organization. He had a lot of friends and advisors from the Ohio State University. He had People from equipment companies, the Ferguson Tractor Company, for example, gave him free tractors to try out on the farm in return for all the publicity they got. He had tillers, the Graham Home plow that was manufactured in Texas. That was a chisel plow. He had that. He had the Seaman Rotary Tiller. He demonstrated that. And so the influences on Bromfield were Friends of the Land, this movement, and then the agricultural publications of all sorts, including the universities and the equipment manufacturers. And all of these putting together what he called the new agriculture, that was the idea that after World War II, they were going to make American agriculture even better than it had been before. Because, I mean, farmers were really struggling during the Depression. They couldn't make ends meet. There wasn't just the soil erosion. There was the economic crisis. And what Brownfield and most other people at the time thought was that if farming could be made more efficient, could be made more like a business, then the farmers could actually make a decent living farming. And that was what he called the new agriculture. It was a combination of what was already starting to be called agribusiness at the time, plus all of this conservation stuff. And he felt like that was the way of the future. How good a farmer was Lewis Bromfield? Um, from what I can gather, and of course, people, there, there are different views on it. Like people say, oh, he exaggerated how much topsoil he built and all that. But all of the accounts of people visiting the farm say that it was noticeably greener and lusher looking than all of the surrounding farms. So I would say he was a pretty good farmer. Yeah. Well, you know, so how much of a working farm was it and how much of a kind of a laboratory was it? I mean, was he, he wasn't really depending on the farm to pay his bills so much, was he? Well, he shouldn't have been. Sometimes he made it sound like he was, but his bills were much higher than the best farm ever could possibly support. Um, but he was really into the economic side of it, especially in the late 40s after World War II. Dairy farming was profitable. It's like the only time in American history that dairy farming was profitable, but it was 
from about 1947 to 1953. And during that time, Brownfield wrote most of his books about grass farming. And he talked about the milk check and how that kept the farm running. And, you know, he, he made it sound like it was really profitable. His actual account books, you know, sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. But he tried to make it a working farm. It Because he got all the free equipment and stuff, it wasn't necessarily that the average farmer could do everything he did, but he really tried to make it that way. Well, talk a little bit about these field days that they would have there. I mean, these were like Woodstock size events, it seemed like. I mean, I've, I've seen some of the photos that ran with with uh, some of your columns in Acres USA magazine, and I was just uh, sort of blown away by the scale of these events and, and the number of people that they were attracting. I mean, you're just, you're just cars just spread out everywhere, all, all going to Malabar to kind of see what he's up to. Yeah. So the biggest one that he ever had was in 1952. That was the Successful Farming Field Day that was sponsored by Successful Farming Magazine. And I think it was 6,000 people that showed up for that, which was the largest group that ever visited his farm at once. And yeah, they had to park all the cars in the fields. They didn't have, they didn't provide any food for all these people. So they bought out everything that was in the stores in Lucas, which is a tiny town four miles away. Uh, They said the next day there was nothing left except a can of lard in the stores because they didn't have any food for all these people. And so they had tillage demonstrations. That was a big part of it. They had irrigation piping demonstrations. They were showing off the new irrigation systems. They would have speeches by Bromfield, by other people. It was like a huge convention. It was all about going to the farm and seeing stuff. There wasn't any entertainment other than that there wasn't like like I said there were no food there were no concessions things like that people came to see Brownfield and to see the farming and to take that knowledge back with them we're going to hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor Barn to Door hey this is Sebastian with Barn to Door we help farms sell direct and we've recently partnered with the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund to create a new podcast series to help farmers navigate common legal issues with selling their products. Here's a segment from that series where we cover some of the nuances with selling raw milk. Interstate sales of raw milk is prohibited. The FDA prohibits the interstate sale. So that means selling across the state lines. Intrastate, you can't sell. Correct. Which in the Northeast does get dicey because you get in and out of states pretty quickly, (laughs) right? Yeah. In every state then has the ability to regulate raw milk how they choose to do so. So some states prohibit the sales of raw milk altogether. Some states permit on farm sales of raw milk. Some states will require specific permits for the production of raw milk that may involve inspections from your local Department of Agriculture or your local Department of Health. A lot of states don't allow the sale at all of raw milk, but do allow what's called herd share agreements. Mm -hmm. And that is one thing we do for our members on a very regular basis is draft these agreements so that consumers of raw milk who want the product actually become a partial owner of the dairy herd. So they buy a share in the herd and that way they're able to access product from their own herder, you know, and be able to access the raw milk in that fashion. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So we draft those agreements for our members. We will help them through the regulatory process where there are permit requirements. It gets really complicated, but we will help them through the process, our members, and draft those kind of agreements for them. 
If you'd like to hear more, head on over to the Direct Farm Podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts or go to barntodor.com slash resources to find many more free resources for your farm business. Thanks for listening. And so, you know, how would you describe Lewis Bromfield's legacy? You know, I, I kind of see him in a way through your book as being this rediscovered figure, but I think you argue that he has had a lasting influence on a particular type of agriculture and farming up until, you know, today. Explain that, you know, does, does you believe that he still has sort of a lasting impact on American agriculture? Yeah. And I think it's interesting that the impact that Bromfield, Malabar, and I like to lump them together with the movements he was part of, because of course he wasn't just this lone person by himself. There were so many other people talking about these ideas together. But I see multiple things as coming out of that movement and the new agriculture that Bromfield promoted. On one hand, the new agriculture turned into that very industrialized agricultural system that the organic farmers were critiquing by the 1970s. That, in part, was a legacy of what Bromfield was talking about. When he wanted farming to be more efficient, he had no problem with what he called inefficient farmers being liquidated. I don't think he would have ever imagined that it would go to the extent it has now, where you have less than 1% of the population farming, but he felt like there were too many people farming at the time. And so, he wasn't necessarily in favor of the very small farm. He had a, his farm was very large for the time. So that's one of the legacies of Malabar. But another of the legacies of Malabar is the sustainable agriculture movement in parts of the organic farming movement, the idea of working with nature. That was big. That was what Bromfield talked about all the time was if we work with nature, we'll be successful. If we work against nature, we're going to get in trouble. And so I see that also as a legacy of Malabar. And both of them are legacies of that, because I feel like there was this divide in the 1950s and this divide that we have now between conventional and organic or between environmentalists and conventional farmers. That divide didn't exist in Bromfield's day. It was starting by the very end when he died. But and so I say that the legacy of Bromfield kind of is almost almost everything in agriculture today, like almost on both sides of that divide, there are some things that you can trace back to Bromfield and the era that he was part of. What's, what's the state of Malabar Farm today? It's a state park, right? Yes, it's a state park. They have a beef cattle herd. I haven't been there for a couple of years. I don't think it's changed a lot since I was there. I don't know if they found a new tenant yet. They have a restaurant that when it was last open was serving local food and beef from the farm. They have a maple syrup festival they do every spring. They have a Ohio Heritage Days festival, which is one of the biggest outdoor festivals in the state of Ohio. That was started in the 70s. They're still doing that every fall in September. And then you can still go on wagon tours of the farm. Last I went, the beef cattle was the only real agriculture going on there. They were leasing a lot of the fields to another farmer who was planting soybeans. And they were like soybean in soybean no-till, and there was hardly any residue. And I didn't think that was very good management practices, even for no-till, because there was a lot of bare soil. Um, But it may have changed since then. It's been three years since I've actually visited the farm. But the big house is still exactly like it was when Bromfield was there, except cleaner. It doesn't have all the clutter or the dogs, but (laughs) (laughs) still got all the furniture and the wallpaper and everything. So going on a tour of the house is really cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about the end of Bromfield's life. I mean, you know, just reading a little bit about it, it it seemed 
to have a, a bit of sadness to it. I mean, his health was sort of failing. His wife passed away. His literary reputation was fading. He had these sort of significant financial issues. Yeah. So a lot of things happened to him all at once. His secretary, George Hawkins, died in 1948. And that was when his novels really started to become less popular because Hawkins always knew what the public wanted and, you know, directed Bromfield's writing in the ways that he thought would make the most money. He was a very practical person in that regard. With him gone, Bromfield's novels were not as successful. And then his wife passed away in 1952. His daughters uh, might have wanted to take over the farm. His two daughters, Ellen and Hope, were both capable of doing it, but they could he couldn't share it with them it was too important to him he couldn't let them help with running the farm so they ended up leaving ellen went to brazil and then hope and her husband moved first to virginia and later ended up out in montana and so by the end of his life bromfield was left as far as family goes mostly alone at malabar there there were of course still a lot of people there it wasn't like he was all by himself there were tons of people um but he definitely started to struggle financially he had that very extravagant lifestyle and the farm income could not have supported that he still had enough from his writing that he could have lived just a normal lifestyle but he couldn't do that he wanted to have the big parties and everything and with the farm from 1953, after the Korean conflict ended, that was when agricultural prices really collapsed. In the downward trend that really has continued up till now, it really hasn't been good for farmers in the United States since then. And that was really hard for Bromfield to see that it wasn't as simple as he had thought. It wasn't just you do everything right and you automatically make a profit and starting to see all of those dreams fading and that it was economics wasn't just about goods conservation. It wasn't automatically economical. And then with all the emphasis on the Cold War, the space program, interest in conservation really start was starting to decline. Um, not as much. He died in 1956. It was after he died that that really got worse, but it was starting. And the division between the organic farming and conventional farming, that divide was already starting in the early 50s. It became much worse later. And so he he was probably, I would say, pretty depressed by the end of his life. He did write about an experience he had when he visited his daughter Ellen in Brazil in the fazenda there. Um, there was a white room and he talked about reading a book by Albert Schwitzer in that room and this phrase reverence for life jumped out at him. And so that was what he wrote in his final book from my experience was about that and reverence for life and how that was the foundation working with nature of everything that he did at Malabar. But I would say he was definitely getting quite depressed by the time he passed away in 56. So describe your research process for this book you know what materials were you sifting through you know what inter were you doing interviews you know I'm kind of curious to how it all came about from a kind of an academic research perspective yeah so it started actually when I was an undergraduate student at the Ohio State University I was an honor student and so I had to do some kind of research project I wanted to do something historical because there was no class in agricultural history and I wanted to learn more about it. So I went to the library and talked to the rare books and manuscripts curator and asked him, do you have any collections on agricultural history? And he said, well, there's the Lewis Bromfield collection. And at that time, I asked, I was only a freshman when I asked the first time and I didn't even know 
who Lewis Bromfield was. So I checked out some of his books from the library and said, hey, this is kind of interesting. I do want to learn more about this guy. And so when I was ready to do the research project, I started looking at the archives. And I looked at mostly archives when I was still there. I wrote an honors thesis that was based pretty much just on the archives. And then after I graduated in 2016, I thought about, you know, this is, I uncovered a lot of new information that nobody had ever published. And I thought this maybe could be a book. And so I started contacting publishers and they said, you need more background information, you need more context. And so over the next four years, what I did was I started really looking at the context. Like say Brownfield wrote about grass farming. So I'm like, okay, well, what was grass farming and who else was talking about it at the time? And so reading all of that literature from university libraries. And then when I got closer to writing the book, I went back to the archives. I looked at thousands of pages of archival documents. Um, you could take a digital camera into the archives and just snap pictures of them all and then look at them later. So that's what I did during my trips to Ohio. I also looked at the archives of Friends of the Land, which were at the Ohio History Connection, which is also in Columbus, Ohio. For the more most recent um, period, I also relied a lot on newspaper articles, especially from the Mansfield News Journal. I ended up getting a subscription to newspapers.com for about a month so that I could look at articles from that going all the way back to the 40s, all the way up to the present. And so the newspaper articles, I looked at thousands of those. And then I, there were a few gaps in the most recent time periods when it was owned by the state, they didn't keep very good records. So there weren't really archives from that time period. But fortunately, most of the park managers that have been managed the park since the 1970s um, are still alive and most of them were willing to talk to me. So Jim Barry was the first one starting in 1976 when the Ohio Department of Natural Resources took over control of Malabar. And so he was really helpful. I was able to interview him. He was only 26 at the time when he started. So he was only set, he's only 70 now. So I was actually able to interview him and talk about that. And then after that, I was able to go on and interview Louis Andres. He was one of the managers in the 1990s, all the way up through the mid or maybe late 2000s. He was, he was the second longest park manager after Jim Barry. So I was able to interview him and a couple other park managers. And so all of that, putting all of that together, I had, uh, I printed out most of my notes. I had a three ring binder that was like three inches thick, just of paper of all the notes I typed up from the archives and newspaper articles and stuff. And then it was just a matter of going through all of that and trying to organize it to bring the story out because the story was there. All I had to do was bring it together and tell it. I'm curious in a more about your background what what led you to to go down this avenue i mean you know you 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 have some agriculture in your in your in your life right yes and so my family uh, moved out to the country when i was 11 years old and started a small i'd call it a hobby farm like homestead my dad worked a good job it wasn't like it supported the family or anything but we did grow most of our food we had dairy goats a garden chickens bees turkeys all of those things. And so that got me really interested in sustainable agriculture in the mid 2000s. It was between about 2005, 2007 that we started most of these things. And so I was really interested in sustainable agriculture. That was during the time of the Great Recession, 2007, 2008, when gas prices went up. So I started wondering about cheap oil, about, you know, are we going to be able to have cheap oil forever if we don't? 
our food system is so dependent on petroleum to truck things such long distances. And so I got really interested in the local regional food movement. I was involved with a lot of local regional food organizations in my area. We had a lot of people come up to our farm. We taught classes. My mom taught them and I taught them also. And so I decided when it was time to go to college that I wanted to study sustainable agriculture. So I went to the Ohio State University. My major is in sustainable plant systems. And then I minored in soil science. It was actually Lewis Bromfield that got me interested in soil science. All the things he was talking about soil. Because before that, I was like, well, plants are the most important part of the food system. Because, you know, animals have to eat plants. So plants, we can't live without plants. We got to have plants. And then I learned about soil. And I'm like, well, actually, the soil is the most important important part of the food system. Because you can't grow the plants if they don't have soil to grow in. So the plants are important, but the soil is even more important in order to grow those plants. And so that got me really interested in soil science. So I studied that. But like I said, I was really interested in the history because I'm like, well, if we're, you know, going to if our system is unsustainable, which everyone is saying it was. And I'm like, but how did it end up this way? Because if really if it's if it's not good, then why would people purposely do something that they knew was wrong? Like there must have been a reason that we changed. It's like if pre-industrial agriculture was so wonderful, like I pictured it was, then why would anybody ever want to do anything different? And so ever since then, I've just been really interested in understanding like how the American food system became the way it was, like not just critiquing it, but why is it the way it is? And what were the philosophies that led to it? And then how have people critiqued it over the years? And have they been successful? And if not, why not? And what has worked and what hasn't? And so that's really what drives me, what makes me so interested in this history, because I feel like in order to make plans for the future, we have to really understand what was done in the past so that we can kind of get an idea of how we got where we are so that if we're not in a good place, we can figure out, well, how would we get to a better place or what would we need to undo? And just trying to dig down into all of that is what really fascinates me. Well, given the sort of depth of your knowledge on the history of agriculture in, in this country, particularly in the post-war period, you know, how does that shape your thinking about agriculture and farming today? Yeah, so in some ways I have a different perspective when people are talking about, you know, we should change this, we should change that to see if it's been done before. I think one thing that is sometimes overemphasized in the sustainable agriculture movement is the pessimism, the kind of doom and gloom, like we're always like, oh, this is bad and we have to fix it. I think sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit for looking at the good, positive changes we have made, like less pesticides being used, like conservation tillage, for example, is being used on two thirds of American farmland, and it wasn't four years ago. And so I feel like there have been a lot of positive changes that we don't often give people credit for. I think sometimes people strive too hard for a standard of perfection that we're probably never going to reach. I don't think we're going to ever have a perfect system. Of course, that being said, I think there's a lot of issues with the way our system is. And I don't claim to have the answers on how to make it better because a lot of things when people say this is the answer, I'm like, well, we've been trying that for 40 years and it just hasn't worked. Like people have been talking about, for example, the farmers losing their land and 
you know, the number of farmers in the United States being such a small percent of the total population. People have been worried about that, at least since the 70s, if not earlier. And yet the trend continues. So all of that concern has not changed the trend. And so that's one of the things I'm still trying to figure out, like, well, if we have been concerned about this for 50 years now, why has it not changed? Why why have we not been able to reverse that trend? And things like that, I'm still learning and still trying to figure out what the root causes are of some of these issues that we see today. You know, what what is your perspective on, you know, quote unquote, the small family farm? I mean, I think that's such a, a lightning rod, particularly these days, you know, it's either, you know, the concept has always been flawed uh, since the beginning, and it's sort of based on this sort of Jeffersonian ideal that never really worked. Or, you know, people see it as like the antidote to the industrial model is we just need just a nation of peasant farmers, you know, and both of them may be ahistorical. Some of them might be accurate, some of these assessments, but like, how, how do you come down on the role of the small family farm within our food system? Well, again, like you said, there are those two perspectives and my own perspective has changed over the years because I used to romanticize it a lot also, but then, you know, homesteading myself and trying all these things and reading all these stories of homesteaders. It's really hard to have a self-sufficient farm. You can do it. It's possible, but it has to be your life. You can't really do anything else. And I think most Americans just aren't willing to accept that. We, we always want more. We want to have more. Like, yes, you can grow your own food and live on that. I think it's possible. I, But it just doesn't the reason that that model failed, I realized throughout history, is that people always wanted more. They did. They weren't. They weren't content with the standard of living because it is a very low standard of living if you try to have a subsistence farm. And the fact is that most of the people who romanticize peasant agriculture are not peasants. You don't usually hear people that are actually living on subsistence farms. They usually do not romanticize it. It's the people who. Yeah. aren't in that they see that and they say oh i want that but yet the people who are actually in that kind of lifestyle usually are like well but i want more i want to have these things that other people have and so it's very it's very complicated issue like i feel like there should be a place for more for more families to be able to be involved in agriculture definitely um, it's pretty much impossible to make a living in agriculture at almost any scale in America. Even conventional farmers, usually one member of the family works full time off the farm in a job. Just hardly anybody can do it. And I don't have easy solutions for that. Like, I wish there was a solution, but every solution people talk about and I start to look at it, it, it turns out to not actually be what they thought it was. So, yeah, I don't really have the answer for that. Yeah. Is there a modern day? Lewis Bromfield that you can think of? Or I mean, is there some figure or figures within agriculture today who play a similar role in the discourse? Yeah, I thought about that a lot. And actually, I as part of my research I'm doing right now as a graduate student, I've been looking at the most influential figures in agriculture doing a survey for people to put put people down. And I would say that there's a lot of different people that are influential, but if you were to pick people that actually had farms, that people visited, that have strongly influenced agricultural methods, it seems like the two closest analogs to Bromfield, and neither of them are like Bromfield at all, like they have very different personalities, but 
both mm-hmm. Elliot Coleman and Joel Salatin, I would say, are two modern figures that play kind of a similar role in influencing people's farming methods. Okay, well, so so Joel, Joel Salatin and Elliot Coleman, um, you know, what so what is it about what they're doing that that sort of resonates now, and 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 how is it sort of different than what Bromfield was doing? Maybe as it relates to agriculture, obviously they're not throwing lavish parties for celebrities. No. So both of them, I think, have really risen to prominence with the local food movement. So like Joel Salatin in the grass farming, there's a lot of analogs with Romfield there, very similar kind of system. Although the more modern version with writers like Andre Voison and other people that were after Bromfield for the management intensive grazing that Joel Salatin uses and that others have advocated. So and then Elliot Coleman has really influenced vegetable production in the northern regions of the United States, especially season extension. Pretty much everyone who has a CSA has been influenced to some extent by Elliot Coleman. Well, you know, I, I look forward to reading your column every month. Every month I get to, you know, be surprised by something that I didn't know. And I think that's such a rare thing. And and I appreciate it so much. And I'm curious to know, you know, where where's your research taking you next? You know, what are you uncovering these days that has really got you excited? Well, what I'm doing right now, like I said, is tracking like who these most influential people are. So I've been conducting a lot of oral history interviews with not necessarily with the influential people yet, but with other people who fill out my survey, who have been involved in organic farming for a long time hearing their perspectives. And so that's where I'm going at the moment to try to trace all of that. And then at some point, and it may be a year or two before I really am able to write articles about it, but I want to look at the kind of philosophies shaping both organic farming and conventional agriculture and why there is the divide and why there are controversies and trying to dig deeper into that. So that is something that I hope to look more into in the future. Annalise, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. There you have it. Go buy a copy of Malabar Farm at the AcresUSA.com bookstore. And thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on AcresUSA.com, EcoFarmingDaily.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Acres USA is the premier North American publisher on production scale, organic, and sustainable farming. For over five decades, we've helped farmers, ranchers, and market gardeners grow food organically, sustainably, and without harmful toxic chemistry. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.